It's another day, and that means it's another Daily Answer. Your host, Mark Dunnigan. I want to go back to my childhood on this particular episode. It is called, He Will Have a Head. Well, <laughs> I hope so. My parents married um, before the Second World War ended, and my older brother was born after the war. Then years went by, and my mother was unable to have any more children. Finally, my parents reached the point that they were pondering the adoption option. But if that was the case, then they needed to hurry because by that time, my father, who was eight years older than my mom, was reaching the maximum age cutoff for allowing parents to adopt. By the time that I actually come along, my dad is getting close to 45 years old. But then my mom suddenly became sick, so sick that she felt the need to go to the doctor. He informed her that she was pregnant, which was a shock. In fact, she responded, I can't be pregnant. I can't get pregnant. You know, what are you talking about? And he said, well, but you're pregnant. But then he cautioned and told her to avoid getting any sort of hopeful expectations about this particular pregnancy. He noted this pregnancy would either result in a miscarriage or a child that would not survive or a child born severely disabled. My mom and dad were a horrible match when it came to the RH factor, which was quite a big deal of that time. In fact, they were probably about the worst possible combination between blood types. So they were told this baby's not going to live. About a month before my birth, and that would have been sometime in November, my mom was wondering out loud as she talked to the Italian neighbor lady about what a seven pound baby might look like. Well, the neighbor lady drove mom to the local supermarket. She then took mom to the frozen food aisle, picked up a small seven pound turkey and said, he will look like this, except he will have a head. There have been times in my life when I acted like I didn't have a head. Hopefully, for the past 40-some years of trying to live like a Christian, I am living up to the prophecy, he will have a head, or better yet, he will use his head. So on Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving Day, I was born alive, bright-eyed, fully aware, and healthy. In fact, my dad immediately noted, he said, I think he can see us. Years later, my mom told me that every day during that pregnancy, she had prayed, dear God, just let me know every day that he is alive. Well, God answered that prayer. In fact, he answered it so well to the point that my mom almost regretted the way that she had phrased it. Every day, by my energy, I let my mom know I was alive, for I was a handful. At around 18 months, I would take off walking, and my dad would follow me. The family had a pet duck, and the duck and I would rock about a mile. Somehow, without dad's assistance, the duck and I would find our way back to the house. Now, this was probably far more due to the duck than any sort of inner guidance system that was in my little head. 
Years later, when people would ask my mother, where was Mark born? She would immediately respond without blinking an eye. Oh, Arlington Cemetery. And they, and of course they go, they gasp, what? <laughs> you know, he was born in you know, a national cemetery. He was born in a graveyard. And she then realized her mistake. And she said, oh, 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 you know, no, no. I meant to say Arlington County Hospital. And I believe that they were greatly relieved and comforted by her clarification. It's interesting the stories you hear from your parents. My dad dies when I'm like in my early 20s. And so most of the childhood stories um, have kind of, as far as the commentary on them, have come from my mom. I remember my mom would tell me like, oh, Mark, we were, you know, so hoping for a baby and so and really trying to have a child and you came along. Well, in about the last year, I ran into a cousin. It would be the daughter of my dad's only sister. And I heard a little bit different perspective from her because she said that when my mom got pregnant with me, my dad was not all gung-ho about it. I mean, he's a couple of years from retiring from the Navy. He's in his 40s, mid-40s. He wasn't all gung-ho about being a dad again. But he said, when I arrived, that Mark just seemed like he wanted to be here. And that has struck me. I hopefully I'm still that way. And to the audience, are you that are you that way? That is, when we interact with people, do we give the impression, hey, I wanted, I really wanted to be part of this life. I wanted to be in on this. I really want to be here. As in, I really want to be in this family. I really want to be in this marriage. I really want to be in this country. I really want to be in this church. I really want to be at this job. I really want to be in this life. And I want to be part of it. Or are we someone who says, well, I never asked to be born in the first place. Which mentality are we more like? Are we someone that says, hey, man, I'm in. I want to be part of this life. I want to live it to the fullest. I am grateful that I was born, grateful that I'm alive, and I'm going to seize every day and do good. Or are we somebody who resents our existence? Guaranteed, I think, if you resent your resistance, you will your existence you will resent the existence of other people as well i don't know how you i don't th know how you keep those things separate usually i find that people that have the attitude well i never asked to be born usually are not big happy campers when it comes to the existence of other people in the world as well so my dad retires after 20 years of being in the navy and thus, mom, dad, and my older brother and I all piled into our 1960 white Mercury station wagon with the red interior and proceeded to drive across the United States from Virginia to Oregon. Those were the days of no seat belts or no seat belt laws. So my brother said the family folded down the two back seats and I ran around the back of that car 
for the next 3,000 miles. The other thing that entertained me is that the family had a shrunken head, which I guess was a thing of the time, and I don't think it was a real one. I think it was like just this black rubber shrunken head that had rubber strings that, that, that the hair was kind of strings of rubber and the beard and the mustache were strings of rubber and they kind of hung down and I played with that shrunken head all the way across the United States. You know, hey, uh, nothing like a shrunken head to keep a two-year-old boy entertained. When we arrived in Oregon, we initially lived in a shack. That's what everyone called it. It was located next to my mom's folks place in Silverton, Oregon, up on Drift Creek Road, seven or eight miles out of town, um, up towards Silver Creek Falls in an area which is often called Waldo Hills. Years before my grandfather had raised turkeys and the two bedroom shack was built from the wood salvaged from those turkey sheds or turkey houses. I seem to remember one bathroom and a bathtub, two bedrooms, maybe. Seems like there had to be two bedrooms because mom and dad and my older brother and I are all in this th in the shack. And it seems like that my brother had to have had his own bedroom. And frankly, I don't know where I slept. I don't remember that. I clearly remember what the bathroom looked like, and I clearly remember what one bedroom looked like, the little living room and the kitchen. And the kitchen had bright red cabinets, the mudroom, and vague memories of the garage. But I just don't remember where did my older brother sleep and where did I sleep? Now, the neat thing about living in a shack is that I was allowed to pedal my fire engine, my little fire engine in the living room and um, kind of ride my bike inside. I was just kind of allowed to do that. There was a dirt, dirt pathway that existed between the shack and the grandparents' house and farm. In fact, to this day, I have an aerial photo showing the shack and the farm and someone on the path between them, probably taken in the mid or late 50s. I had a lot of, because the road out front was still gravel. It had not been paved. I had a lot of freedom. In fact, I picked up a bad habit growing up out in the country. When I had to, the urge to urinate, I simply went in the front yard. Often neighboring farmers would drive by, like Fred Taylor, and there I would be relieving myself in the front yard for the entire world to see, smiling and waving like a madman and going to the bathroom. When we moved into town in June, I believe of 62, the first day we took possession of our home on Edgewood Drive, and I remember pulling up, I remember clearly pulling up to that house. Mom observed me going around and urinating on all the big oak trees in the yard, like I was marking my territory. Got to hit them all. She immediately informed me that in the suburbs, that's not acceptable. There were some new rules. And I abided by that, even though I think at times, and maybe only men understand this, that is, 
there are times that your mom or women don't realize the freedom of simply urinating outside in the woods. That's, that's a free man. All right. Even though I understand what the rules are now that we live in the suburbs. One downside of life on the farm was that there were no children my age around for miles. So I developed two imaginary friends. One was Mr. McGregor. I think I pulled him probably out of the book, Peter Rabbit, that I think the family had. Then the other was called Popeye. I assume spelled like Popeye and yet with a long O and, you know, Popeye. Mom asked me what Popeye looked like. And I said, well, he looked like Fred Taylor with hair. Fred Taylor had a bald head, but one of those, he had a perpetual tan, you know, and in Oregon, he didn't have a, per, uh, there were no tanning salons at the time, but he had very olive skin. And so he had this bald head, big smile, big personality, bright eyes. And I said, well, Popeye looked like that, except he had hair. Fred was always joking, laughing, a real prankster. And as I noted, had this amazing big smile. When we moved the Silverton into a neighborhood with all of a sudden many children my age, suddenly Mr. McGregor, who I think was probably the responsible one in the relationship, and Popeye, who probably was more of a prankster, they disappeared. They were no longer needed, but had served a very useful purpose. All the years later, I often think of the fact that when carrying me, I was often the object of my mother's prayers. Now that's a sobering thought. How should one live when you realize that your very existence is the answer to a prayer or that you are the answer to someone else's prayer? Do you live for yourself? Or do you realize that you are here on purpose? You are definitely no accident. You have a mission in life. God reminds all of us what that mission is. Ecclesiastes 13 and 14. Solomon noted when everything has been heard, all the information has been gathered. It's all in and it's all summed up. What's the most important thing in life? What's man's overriding purpose? Solomon said, fear God and keep his commandments. He also said it applies to every person. And then he said, for God will bring everything in the judgment. I like the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a very interesting book because it starts with the premise in chapter one, about verse two through four, nothing matters. It's all vain. It ends, it ends with the conclusion, everything matters. Everything that you do matters. Life is not vain. You're here for a purpose. You're here to glorify your creator. You might say, as Jesus noted, you're here to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You're here to do good, not harm. You're here to live a constructive, not destructive life. You're here to help other people out. You're here as an answer to somebody else's prayers. 
You ever think about that? Are you living up to that? I, I remember when I was not a Christian and I would be drinking, etc., and living recklessly. I still realized that mom, my mom had not gone through the pain of childbirth so I could spend the rest of my life on a bar stool. Okay. I realized I was underperforming, undershooting my mission. Are you fulfilling your mission as the answer to your parents' prayers? Where you're living an honorable life, taking care of them, being a good parent. The person that you married at some point, probably that you that person that you married prayed to God and maybe often. Help me find a good husband. Help me find a good wife. Help me find someone to troubleshoot the problems of life together with. Help me find the one. All right. Thus, you are the answer to that prayer. Are you living up to that answer? Are you acting like, yes, here I am. I'm the answer to your prayers. This is Mark Dunnigan for The Daily Answer. You got ahead? Good. Okay. Are you using it? And are you acting like, are you fulfilling that mission? You're probably the answer to somebody's prayers. Until next time, we'll see you in the funny papers.